Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. As a D2C brand, you need real-time financial visibility to save money and make better decisions. Waiting for books from slow and expensive bookkeepers that don't get e-commerce is slowing you down. Trusted by hundreds of brands, FinalLoop is a real-time accounting service built by D2C founders for D2C founders. Try FinalLoop completely free, no credit card required. Just visit finalloop.com slash D2C pod and get 14 days free and a two-month P&L within 24 hours with all the e-com data and breakdowns you need to crush it. DTC pod today we're joined by Ethan Didaskalu who is the founder of July so Ethan I'll let you kick us off why don't you tell us a little bit about uh July okay but hey, can I just can I just comment very great pronunciation of my name most uh most Americans get that totally wrong uh and you smashed it uh the, the so the the background of July uh you know we're, we're a D2C luggage brand uh we started back in 2019 we, you know, we're here to, to do some great things in the product space. We're product guys by default. So myself and my co-founder, Richard, uh, we are, we're product guys, we're hands-on and we're, we're, you know, we go deep on that stuff. So, you know, for us building travel accessories and products that, uh, you know, that try and differentiate and beat the game a bit is, is what we're a bit about. So, you know, since 2019, it's been an interesting few years thanks to COVID, but we're out. Absolutely. And the products are, you know, we're, we're smashing and the brand is resonating well. So yeah, let's, why don't we go back a little bit? What, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then kind of the inspiration to, uh, to build the travel brand? Yeah, my background's in, in advertising. I used to work as a strategy director for an agency called Ogilvy, you know, big multinational agency. And, uh, and my business partner was a product guy. He was in manufacturing. He used to supply um, a, a few other, uh, brands, uh, you know, back when he was in uni, they went out and did his own thing in furniture. Uh, and so we sort of got together as and he's sort of this like manufacturing supply chain guy. Uh, and I've always been this, the, the marketing, uh, strategy guy. And so we sort of, you know, got together having known each other, uh, through the networks and, and just through the local coffee shop, actually, it's the one shop that most people went to. If you were, if you're based out of Collingwood. In, in Melbourne, that's, uh, there was this one shop called a coffee and that's how we sort of met. And we used to just connect and talk about, uh, all the things that, that we were doing. And, and so for me, I, I did the advertising thing and then went off and did, uh, uh, coffee subscriptions and a few other entrepreneurial activities that, that were fun exercises in their own right. But, um, when we got together, we, we discussed the opportunity about like tackling a, a big juicy category. And for us in particular, for the APAC region. It's, it's 100% dominated by Samsonite and it's multitude of brands. And so for us, and even globally, right? Samsonite globally is like 23, 24% market share. Uh, and then second is LVMH at around eight or 9%. And then everyone else is other. 
So, you know, the reality was that, that this is a heavily consolidated market with a lot of opportunity to create differentiation. And we felt we could, we could create something quite special. Having a guy who knows how to make things, knows how to make things extremely well. And then having a guy who, uh, you know, uh, as I like to put the marketing side, just coloring in. So, you know, you know, we, we sort of said, yeah, we can, we can make some really nice stuff together. Let's, um, let's build a brand around that. And for us, you know, even the name July was, was that mark for us, you know, Northern hemispheres in summer. Uh, it's when, uh, you know, it's when you guys will go on holidays. It's when Europeans go on holidays and it's when Australians in particular leave winter to try and go to like Italy or the Greek islands or more enjoyable, more enjoyable places, warmer places. So it's, it has that beautiful travel connotation from day one. And we were extremely lucky that, uh, we could be, um, we could turn that into a brand for ourselves. Yeah. The name is great. Uh, I'm actually lucky enough to be born in July. So I love everything about July, summers, everything. The grand, I knew I liked you. Name. I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so we, I think that's really great to start. Samsonite has a massive uh, market dominance. You guys are like, okay, we can bring in some fresh perspective, bring in a great brand, and and kind of attack some of that market share, especially in the APAC region. But why don't you tell us a little bit about leading up to the launch, right? So once you decide, okay, there might be an opportunity to go after here. What were some of the next steps and what went into actually making the brand July a reality? You know, early days, uh, you get these ideas and you, you've spoken to a lot of founders, right? A lot of the time, these these ideas just come up in conversation and, you know, then it kind of progresses a little bit and a little bit. And at a certain point, you guys sit down at, at, a, at a table and sort of go, are we actually, are we actually doing this? Is this, are we going to be international traveling suitcase salesmen? Is that going to be our jam? And so we we were at that point where uh, we were discussing it. I was actually uh, I had my my in laws in town, and I, that was it was the day that they were leaving. So after I had met up with Richard and, and discussed it, we I took them to the airport, and I was I was telling him my father in law is a is a diplomat, an Asian um, ASEAN political operative, and uh, so he travels a lot. And so I spoke to him about it. I was like, you know, Roger, what do you think? Do you do you think, you know, what do you think about luggage? Do you think this is a good category for us to enter into? We know we can make it well. And he, he sort of guided me. He's like, look, I, I had this suitcase for over 15 years. I, it's my companion. I travel with, I love this thing. I love the wheels. I love the handles. And so you start to realize that luggage, I mean, we knew ourselves, but luggage is actually quite a passion point for a lot of people who travel a lot. Uh, there are certain details that people absolutely love about their suitcases. You know, the things that you wouldn't, typically wouldn't really think about until you've traveled a lot. And so even, even for ourselves, you know, we had luggage, there are things that we knew that we liked that we wanted to sort of bring down into a more affordable price points. And so we're like, okay, we can, we can really do this. Uh, we should, we waited till July 7th. So the 7th of the 7th to register the business. Cause you know, we thought that would be a, a bit of good luck for ourselves. And, um, and then we spent, we, we got a room in a co-working office and we locked ourselves in that room. And spent around three or four months designing it, uh, getting the website ready. Like we did everything ourselves in that first uh, that first bit. You know that, you know that that kind of like room smell where like two guys haven't left for a long time, and and there's like pieces of paper up on the wall, and it smells like sweat and like McDonald's papers, and you know like and it's just like that kind of it was it was it was, it was like a dorm room. It was uh, it was not not a pretty picture, but it it helped us focus. It helped us get into the right set of model what we wanted to do, and 
you know, early days for us, all we, all we did is, is use as much free resources as we could. Things like, uh, reviews, using reviews to set the design brief. So we basically read as many reviews as possible, found out where all the flaws were in, in other suitcases and said, well, this is the beginning of the design brief now for what we need to be able to do. And so, and that was it. That's a really good, I, we felt it was a good framework to set the, the tone from day one. We're coming to this game relatively late. Um, you know, Samsonite's been around for, you know, 50 odd years or so, and all these other new competitors had, had been coming into the market. What could we be doing? Uh, what could we be doing better? So one of those things is that suitcases are quite square and boxy. And one of the issues that a lot of customers have is that it, it faults at the corners, like it's weakest at its edges. So we said, well, why don't we just make it rounder? Why don't we change the radius of the suitcase? So it was a bit rounder, had a lot more bounce back to it. Very simple concept for, um, from a design perspective, it was grounded in, in customer insight with issues that they've had in the past. And so that, that sort of set the tone. Uh, and I, I still remember the, the learning as to why most suitcases don't have the, a curved radius. It's cause you, you have to change the bit of plastic that holds the wheel. And so in order to change it, most people get that thing off the shelf. In order to change that, you've got to spend like 50 or 60 grand to get the molding. And it was, it, we were at this position where we're like, well, is this how we're going to spend our first 50 like, on, a, on a wheel housing molding that, that nobody would care about? But we wanted that radius. You know, we believed in, in that theory. We believed in, in what we were doing. So uh, it, was, it was a great first step in, in showing what we were trying to do for this brand. Everything had to be custom done. Uh, we, we made the wheels ourselves. We obviously changed the radius. Uh, we added aluminum corners for, for additional protection. All of these things based off of um, inside either oh, handle. Uh, the fact that the handle doesn't have three stops, it has over 20. Uh, so particularly for women who are changing uh, shoes, uh, they don't always have the same height shoes. Uh, it's, that means that it's always comfortable for them. Uh, wherever you stop and men just like to fiddle anyway, we just like to stop it wherever we want to go. So it's all these like little bits and pieces that we, we started bundling in. We obviously have the power bank underneath, uh, and, and did it with USB-C from day one, uh, which now seems like an obvious thing, but back then, uh, you know, you didn't know how, how prominent USB-C was going to be. Uh, and so, and so that's how we started. We, we basically just within six months had, had research designed and got into production, uh, this, um, you know, this, our first carry on and, uh, and we pre-sold a couple of containers prior to the product arriving. This is February, 2019 now. And from there, it's just been, it's just been all growth. Well, to a degree, right? So that, that first year, that 2019 year was, was a fantastic year for us. Again, we only had the carry on and then eventually grew to, to make bigger products. Um, in that first six months, we opened a re our first retail store as well, because we believed in the, the omni-channel approach. So, so we had this sort of like, you know, 2019 felt like a magic year for us. You know, the, the product we can't make quick enough. We only had one SKU to begin with. We opened a retail store in a, in a prominent location in Melbourne CBD. And, um, and so we've, you know, we got investment. We, everything was just moving forward in the right direction. And so we felt, we felt on top of the world, but we like, you know, we, we thought we were pretty good until 2020 came along or decided that the world was just not going to travel anymore. And so that, that whatever growth that we had in that first year got completely cut in that second year. So I, I can imagine, right? Because I think the one thing that any travel business really couldn't foresee is like the, literally the, uh, complete 
removal of all travel from everyone everywhere in the world that's like ridiculous but uh so why don't why don't we go into the first year and then i want to get into how you guys dealt with the whole travel thing how you planned it from a business perspective and how you came out on the other side so first though on the side of getting the business stood up you said you a lot went into the product into the design um and then you eventually launched and did some pre-sale as well as opening retail pretty early. So I just want to kind of walk through some of the strategy there, right? Like how, you know, you said you had one one products you at the time you were do, you had the carry on bag, right? But so what, like, what was kind of going into the thought of the launch? Were there multiple colors? Was it one color? Like how? And then on the pre-sale side, like. How did you run your pre-sale? Uh, how many sales did you kind of start to convert in that that first chapter of the business? Yeah, I mean, if I if I think back at year one on how we did it all, uh, I can tell you, I tell you what happened honestly, right? So we we wanted to have the product in 20, late twenty eighteen, so November twenty eighteen, so that we could sell it for Christmas because we felt that we'd get a lot more Christmas sales because of it. But then the product got delayed because, of course, we we're doing things super quick, like a six month development and landed like timeline is super quick and and so the product got delayed a little bit and so we had to we we moved even quicker after that we developed uh luggage like saffiano leather luggage tags like really beautiful leather luggage tags that could be personalized and debossed and we sort of said look if you buy a suitcase pre-order a suitcase now for christmas we'll give you these personalized leather luggage tags and created what's now known as the founders club and you get a, it was a beautiful packaging, little booklet, the luggage tag. And then we would, we were debossing and like, you know, we got the first debossing, that little debossing machine off eBay, you know, like one of those really tiny ones. And it's like Rich and I just like sitting there debossing thing, uh, in order to get the sales done, you know, because we didn't have the product. We knew Christmas was important. And that's how we ended up pre-selling most of the, the, the stock, like the leather, the leather tags, arguably people wanted the tags more than they wanted the suitcases. So, um. So hey, let me just mute that. So so it was uh, it was a really interesting time uh, for us to be able to like say, well, it's, look, the product's delayed. Right now, we've only got renders. The website's a real basic Shopify website. You know, we, everything was like absolute baseline. But we got it done. We got it done together. Uh, it was it was it was just Rich and I for most of this most of this work. And, um, and so then we got those leather, le those leather tags over the line super quickly so we could beat that Christmas sale. And then come February, um, the containers were already, were already sold. We quickly ordered more and, and, and started developing our next range, which is basically the, the check-in bags, the, the medium and the large versions of the same thing. Um, so for us, that was, that was sort of an important run in order to, to get that sort of founders club thing. And, and now like a lot of people are still founders club members and they, and they still tell us. When they email in or when they're, they're coming to buy stuff from the retail store, they're very proud to show the original luggage tag and say, like, I'm, a, I'm an original Founders Club member. Oh, wow. How, we how emailed them separately. How, how many people were in the were in the Founders Club? Uh, I couldn't. I, I don't know if I had. I'll, I'll have to find it. I mean, it wasn't many, right? We were just new business. We didn't have a lot of, like, we hadn't raised money back then. Uh, so we, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of, like, paid marketing spend either and uh, it was, I don't know, call it maybe a thousand people. Sure. But I, I think that's a, that's really cool. I think, um, you know, I think it's a pretty cool idea for uh, a company that's like really launching. That's like 
Because when you're in that first stage of launching, right, and you're trying to get your first customers that are your first evangelists, like how do you bring them in? How do you get them to convert? And, you know, you're not at the scale where you're just trying to run a whole bunch of ads and everyone, like no one's heard of you, right? So like, how do you build that like brand allegiance from your first adopters? Um, and I think the the tag and the founders club is a really cool way to approach that. It was great, and and honestly, like it's it's the fact that even today they they're so proud of it, and uh, you know we we love it. And, uh, you know we look after everybody, but if you come in with the founders tag, we definitely look after you. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, because because you helped us, you helped us get to where we were. You know, you trusted us. It was like a couple of guys with some renders on product that didn't exist, and uh, you know they're like July July didn't mean anything back then. Actually, a really funny, a really funny thing with with the product is that we mold the logo into the product itself, uh, quite large in comparison to like what the, the the category does. They usually just just put a little badge in the corner, and so you know, early days people were like, "I'm not buying the suitcase, no matter how good it looks, because you you blasted your logo all over this thing." Like, who do you guys think you? <laughs> and and so that for us that was our commitment early days to be like well you know we're putting we want people to know that this is not off the shelf that it is 100 custom we did think about this we want you to know who the brand is uh, and we're proud we want you to be proud of it and so all all big brands uh all popular brands anyway at a sort of once they reach that tipping point and people want to be associated with them really do put their logo front and center because because you want to be associated with it so for us, we, we started with that from day one, knowing that we had to commit to a lot of brand marketing and, and commit to what the quality was of the product itself within the, within the brand and the logo so that people could be proud. Um, so today we find us, we find people wanting our suitcases for, for the logo and for the design. Uh, but back then it was a different story. Back then we'd get a lot of emails saying like, it looks good, but I'm not buying it. And that's, that's such an interesting, uh, point because, you know, as an emerging brand, when people maybe don't know who you are, right? Like they're, if you have the logo and it's, it's loud and it's proud, people, people are seeing that and they might be making their purchase decision based on, okay, well, what's this brand about? You know, if people are going to see me traveling with this, what does that say about me? So it's almost like a real statement piece, whereas if it's, you know, a smaller CPG sort of product or a snack that someone's just like eating and it isn't so like public, you know, people don't care as much. So it's a different process that the consumer makes to evaluate those products. So if, for, for people who are listening and building businesses, it's just a really interesting lens to think about product development through is like what your brand is about, how it shows on what type of product medium you're communicating it right yeah and like you know it, it really depends on the category and problem and what's done in the past as well so if you're if you're making shoes and you're making boots and things like if you're in, if you go d to c from that perspective i'm only saying that because i'm looking at some shoes right in front of me now uh you know and a lot of people end up going that's super minimal like ultra like no branding no this no that but that's it's also hard to differentiate as well when you do that and so by putting a logo on there, it actually it actually means that you've got more work to do as the brand owner to then say, well, let's let's make sure that brand means something to people so that they're, they're buying it for that reason. They're buying it and they're proud to have it as opposed to being, a, you know, a little bit upset about it or not even buying it because because they say it as, uh, as, as something that I want to be associated with. The, the next question that I, I have for you guys is as you were starting out, right, like travel accessory suitcases, they're a big thing to manufacture, ship, store, et cetera, right? So what was the strategy when it came to um, 
to like making some of those first POs? Did you have a warehouse that you were shipping goods to? Like, how did you think about, you know, there less suitcases fit in a container than say t-shirts, right? So like, how did you guys think about uh, in the early days making some of those first POs uh, in terms of your scale? How many colors were you ordering? Was it just like one when you were getting started? Where did you store them? How did you fulfill? Uh, why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we've grown so much from that point, right? And and to, to think about that really early day of, of what we did, I mean, it's scrappy. It's so scrappy to... to to actually think about, I haven't thought about that for a while, but to actually think about what we did, we had our, our little office with a, like a car park uh, part, as part of the office, like an old warehouse, like a little mini warehouse with a little drive through the car park. And so the early days, the stock would just go there. And so we'd just get the containers to just drop it on the road. We'd quickly unload it. And we were unloading, you know, these, these are, uh, you know, if you've ever done this sort of stuff, like they weren't palletized. We just jammed. In order to get more product in, it was to seal container so like we've got guys who've just like you know friends who've like climbed to the top and just yep throw it down catching it throwing it in you know it was it was as scrappy as as that and um and so we kept all the stuff there and we shipped it out ourselves there was no 3pls to begin with uh we kept things pretty pretty lean uh and for most of the time you know i mean even today we still have an office warehouse where 50% of the, of the, the office space is, is warehouse and dispatch, uh, and special orders. Uh, even though we do use now three PLs across the world. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, we still like that element of being very close to the product and have the operations team really connected. So yeah, early days, man, it was, it was, uh, products, products of the warehouse, you know, and we've just got photos of like boxes just surrounded by boxes because they're huge things too. And, uh, and, and so, you know, it, it was a, it was a really fun time, man. You know, it was a really, really fun time to do that sort of stuff. And it's important early days, anybody doing DVC to be able to control those first few shipments, uh, so that you understand what the customer's getting, you know, you, you really sort of hands on with it. You're writing notes, you're doing all those sorts of things to make it feel quite personal. It, these early stages, it's, it's, you know, if you think of them like a, like a mint plant, or you think of them like a flower or something, it really takes a lot of nurturing up front. Once it's grown, and again, it, it will take over the entire garden, but at very early stages, you got to keep that thing well nurtured. What were some of the early learnings? Like you said, maybe in those first couple of production runs, were there any like minor product iterations that you started to learn from or little adjustments that you wanted to make before scaling out all of your different product lines? We're always iterating the products. So there's 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 been maybe 150 changes since we first uh, launched for that, first, for that carry-on. Early days, early days, things, you know, things like cardboard quality, uh, you don't really know the strength of the fluid that you need in order to, to be able to like for, for local delivery guys, by the time it gets to final customer, uh, for that cardboard to actually look good by the time it, by the, by the time it arrives. So I remember in that first year, we actually were very ambitious. We launched in Singapore, uh, online as well. And, uh, and so we were like, okay, cool. You know, we're going to do Singapore now too. It's like first step into Asia within our first year. This is great. But we actually, we stored the product in non-temperature controlled warehousing. It was very humid in Singapore. And so the cotton, they're, they're all wrapped in cotton dust bags. The cotton dust bags ended up getting mold on them, which was just a, something that we just didn't even think about, you know? And then we had a couple of complaints come through. We're like, mold, how on earth are these things getting mold in them? 
And, and so very quickly, we, you know, we sort of figured that problem out. And, uh, like, I still remember like going, you know, replacing the dust bags, shifting the boxes out. Like it was, it was work. You know? So, uh, we, we have a, we've had a lot of learnings along the way. The ultimately product is never finished. So, you know, this, this concept of like getting something perfect, the perfect is, is not real. Uh, there is no such thing as perfect. You want to continue be, to, to be iterating, continue changing things. For us, customer feedback uh, is number one. It's the thing that we listen to the most, more than anything else. It's very easy to say that, but it's it was the foundation of the business. Reading customer reviews set the tone for the brief. Uh, we we have a retail store right next to the office as part of, of as part of what we do, and a lot of the products that we've made have come from anecdotal comments from customers coming in. We showed them samples. So customers were coming in and talking about things that they want. We actually then go and show them some samples and see what they think about things. Uh, this was how we invented the carry-on light expandable. So we ended up, we, you know, come 2020, 2021, we ended up making the world's lightest double-wheel carry-on at um, 1.8 kilos, 3.9 pounds, 3.8 pounds. So super light bag. But the, the, a lot of customers were telling us, I love it, but it's just not big enough. It just doesn't have enough volume. I hear you about the weight. I want that weight to be low, but I need, I also need volume too. You know, this classic, this classic thing of, you know, customers want everything and you got to find clever ways to, to deliver it to them. So we actually sat a, a couple of customers down and go, well, how do we, how do we solve this for you? How do we make sure that you come back and buy this thing? And they're like, well, I would do this. I would expand this. I would, I would change this. And so they gave us a bit of feedback. We went into product development and, and now it's one of our top selling products. Good morning, America. I voted it the best carry on. Uh, so that was, and that was only last week or a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, for us that, that sets the tone of what we do. We love hearing customer feedback and we love changing things a lot. Yeah. When, when you actually, when you mentioned that about even your brief going to other luggage manufacturers reading through the customer feedback and then saying, oh, this is our opportunity here to create a brand and a product. I think that's super smart. And I do think that a lot of people, I think, say we listen to our customers and, you know, we're customer centric. Like it's a, it's a really buzzword. We care about our community and sure, a, a lot of brands do, but I think doing the things and making it like truly a part of your brand identity is so, so important because it allows you to to like build his better product so much faster and skip through all those like bad rounds of customer feedback, right? The faster you can pick up on something, the l less amount of times you need to hear the same feedback from a whole new batch of customers, right? The le less times you need to run an entire product run that are, you're just going to get the same feedback over and over and over again. That's right. That's right. And look, you know, look, you, you'll never always get it right from day one. And there's, there's a lot of people love quoting that uh, Henry Ford, quote of you know if you ask people what they wanted they'd say that they wanted a faster horse yes that's true too you know to a certain degree you need to you need to set the baseline of like well let's change if you want to do a paradigm shift and change fundamentally what you're doing you need a bit more vision personally in that to be able to to get that over the line but for the most part customers know what they want and they're more than we like the information is out there they you know you need to for any of the any you know this is a d2c podcast there's a lot of early stage founders, a lot of late stage founders. You know, you need to be as scrappy as possible, as lean as possible. And the leanest thing that you can do in DTC in a physical product world 
is just ask customers what they want or at least go and read what they're, what they're posting about um, the category. And so if you can change some of those things, you can baseline it as a brand. Absolutely. And, and being even proactive about it, right? Like I think what's interesting is, like you said, when you're reading product reviews for a brand that even that's not even your brand, you're still like learning from potential customers, right? That have their eye on what you're doing. So it's like, there's no excuse. You don't, you don't say, oh, like, yeah, they just wrote into me and I don't have a way to talk. There's always a way to like really get into the mind of your customer, whether you don't even have them yet, whether you have them and they're communicating with you via text, whether you've built a relationship with them, they're a founder club member, or whether they're literally in your physical store and you're like, hey, you know, we've got these in their works. Is this something that you'd be down with? So I think just like really building that into uh, your DNA is definitely an important thing. So moving forward, you guys have started the brand, things start to look good. Uh, you've got your first couple production runs. And then, um, yeah, why don't you walk us through the lead up to 2020 before everything shut down? Yeah, so we ended up getting some investment from uh, from a couple of great uh, great investors, which was which was great. That was just we just opened the retail store, and so for us, you know, D 2 C, D often only means online only, and and online pure play, but we we really like physical retail. And it's not just a flex, but it's actually from, from, a, from a lot of things, it's what customers actually want. And I'll tell you in, in travel in particular, there's a really good subset of people who are like eight weeks out, they booked the flights, six weeks out, they booked the hotels. They know exactly what they're wearing. They know exactly what they're doing. My wife is, is that person, right? So like very planned, hand order luggage, no problem, a week per delivery. It's all factored in. And then there are some people like myself who go, I just want a new suitcase and I leave tomorrow. Now I might want a July. I know the brand. I know the product. I really, really want it. I don't trust. I don't trust the, the, the delivery timeframes. I don't trust I'm going to get it in time. I'm leaving super quick. I'm just going to end up going to a department store and getting something. I don't want to lose a customer because of that. So a lot of the time when you really look at the customer journey and go, you know, physical product actually makes a lot of sense. For a lot of DLC brands, gifting and Christmas gifting is a really, really big part of it. Uh, it's when shipping timelines struggle the most. Uh, it's when people need gifts at certain times that they need immediacy because they're either flying a week before Christmas or they need to wrap it and they need to do all these things. So, you know, there, there is there is a sense that physical retail, like, you know, people love to slam it and say, like, it's old school, but it is experiential. And I think if retail rents actually came down quite a lot, you'd see a lot more experiential retail coming through. You know, really fun things like, you know, you can only buy certain products or only have certain experiences within the retail store. And then online is just sort of a baseline. I love that. I love those sorts of things. I think it's a really cool uh, luxury strategy approach to to doing to do a retail. Uh, anyway, so I love stores, right? I love, I love that component of it. And so we did that in our first year and, and it helped us establish the brand as, as something more than just uh, an e-commerce brand and online, an online luggage business. We, from that point on, uh, you know, we had a lot more opportunities to, to keep growing. We were making new products and then 2020 came along. Now for us, like, like most of the world, if you ever remember it, everyone thought it would be like a one month, two month thing at most, and the world would get back to normal. 
Well, for, for Australia in particular, uh, we will want some of the strictest lockdowns. And so we're talking now two, almost two years worth of inactivity. Uh, we tried a lot of different things to differentiate, uh, things like, uh, manufacture, like we did bottles. We went into the, the drink bottle game. Uh, we tried to do, uh, art like travel art and things like that, which is quite fun, but uh, ultimately, you know, we spent most of the time heads down in product development mode, uh, trying to re-strategize what we're going to do. But then we also, you know, like we're, we're resourceful, right? We're only, we're still in this, like, you know, very scrappy startup founder world where we're only a year in, you know, and the business has been cut globally. So, you know, what do we do, right? We're not going to just be like, well, we had a good run. That was it. You know, we're, we're still hungry. We're still, we're still high energy. So what do we do? We had a look at who was still flying. And back then China was, was the message in China was that COVID's not a big deal. And so domestic flying was still happening a lot in China. They're the only people flying in the world. So we launched retail in China online, um, through Tmall. And so that helped us, uh, that helped us continue to sell stock. We were building momentum there. And so that was, that was a really good sort of way for us to, to keep going and, and try something new as well. It's a really like, not many people get to say that they attempted retail in China. And so it was a really big learning curve for us. Uh, but, but it was quite successful. And, and so then we, we just kept going. We're like, all right, well, we during that process, we had done, we'd gone into product development mode. And for us, our big differentiators are July now, like from that, from this re-strategized moment of, of like having the time frame in, in COVID to sit down and go, how are we going to annoy Samsonite as much as possible? That's really like our, our goal here, right? Like, how are we going to annoy these guys? Samsonite, LVM, HMT, like these guys have the majority of the global share. Let's annoy these guys as much as possible. What do we need to do? So, you know, for us, we're like, oh, well, you know, there's, there's luxury luggage. And then there's, there's another category of traveler who wants light luggage and, and America's actually like the U S is a, is a funny place where they, it's one of the few places in the world where, where the weight of, of your carrying on doesn't really matter that much. Um, it's, it's more about volume, uh, restrictions than weight restrictions, but for the rest of the world, especially if you're flying in Europe and UK and Europe for budget airlines, weight, it's all about weight. It's all about getting it under, under that, um, the, the budget airline weight weight restrictions so we're like okay well you know samsonite trades on light you know super uh, you know ugly suitcases but they they really trade on that light that light framework and that's how they sell most of their product and we know because we used to call up all the luggage department stores and just pretend we were students asking them for like what was your biggest sellers and why and you know like as part of that free research that scrappy research stage we would just pretend we were students to be like, well, we're doing an assignment, like what sells, why, what colors, what are the, the key, dip, what are the key points? And like, weight is, is a big one, uh, for, especially for Australians, weight was a big one. And then, and then the other side was luxury. Like uh, Rimo has obviously done a stellar job since LVMH had bought him out and, and Tumi and, and all that. And Tumi's owned by Samsonite as well, but they basically, then baseline this super expensive luggage range that is very inaccessible for a lot of people. So for us, we, we sort of said, well, let's, let's, let's beat them on, on both fronts. So we developed from a luxury perspective, we developed the trunk range, the trunk collection, uh, which is our answer to, to luxury luggage. It's more expensive than what we do as a, as a classic range as a, as sort of battleground luggage, but 
uh, it is significantly cheaper than the luxury stuff. We don't wholesale, so so our you know the margins the margins are ours, but it means that we've we've been able to RP it at a lot less. So that took off, I, like especially in the US. When we we so twenty we we launched that for twenty twenty one July twenty twenty one is when we launched in the US, and we launched our trunk range then uh, for the US market because we knew that it was about style. Americans wanted wanted luxury luggage. They wanted beautiful luggage. They didn't necessarily want to pay a thousand fifteen hundred dollars for that. For that, uh, they could they could get they could get beautiful luggage, same quality for five hundred. And uh, mate, the trunks, we couldn't make these things. What I mean, what are you guys? Because I'm seeing them on on your site. They I know I've seen them in person. They look amazing. What um what material are they made out of? The trunk. They're made of polycarbonate. They're still polycarbonate. Oh, wow. We did, we did for that first range. We did a, a new treatment called a glazed. Um, there's a glazed polycarbonate, so it's, it was a, it's shiny, but like with depth, it was uh, it was gorgeous. Uh, it was a really really lovely product. And so from a US market launch perspective, uh, really couldn't make these things quick enough. There was it was a really great launch in that in that front. So that was great to be able to say, well, we're tackling luxury. You know, a lot of our customers could afford Louis Vuitton and Renoir, can't afford them. But understand the category. Understand that it just needs to be color forward. It needs to have all the features. Like we out feature these guys because of the power banks, because the handle that stops everywhere, because of the wheels. So you know we 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 did a great job there. And then the other side was the light one. So we did the the world's lightest carry on, and um, and you know again significant sales in that, especially in Australia. Uh, but we were still in lockdown, and and so you know we've got this great product that was sitting there. It was it was bubbling like it needed it needed the 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 exposure to budget airline growth, and so once Australia came out of lockdown, so we launched US in July 2021. Uh, Australia ended up ended its lockdown around September October 2021, and from that point onwards, it's just been through the roof, and uh, and with that that light product, so the light and the luxury, uh, the light and the trunk, uh, we are now getting ready to launch into the UK and European markets. And mainly, mainly because we know that like budget airlines in, in Europe, uh, that's all they fly. We're talking 20 euro Ryanair flights. Uh, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful thing, this is my favorite feature. The beautiful thing of the carry on light is that it fits under your chair. It doesn't have to go in the overhead bin. It can go under it. It's crazy. So, so it's a great, you know, you can tell that we're product guys, you know, like we're, we're just obsessed with these little details of of um, how good a suitcase can be and how much you can innovate outside of just keeping the same shape and the same kind of feature sets just and just changing colors. What else can you be doing? And so for us, it was going, this is our battleground, but what if? What if we tackle luxury? What if we tackle light? Well, and and I think what's so interesting about the, the space is like a lot of the older suitcase manufacturers, like the, it's just from a product perspective, it's just not really suited to the way people travel today and like they're just like i don't know i i see some of the the bags like my my parents have or like other people i'll see in the airport i'm like how are you pulling that stuff around because like i know that i know exactly what i want in a suitcase i want something that rolls on four wheels looks good fits in the places that i needed to fit is light it has power it's like good to go it can get it can go with me anywhere um, so I think it's gotta be a ton of fun to be able to innovate in that space as well, because there's just like 
there's just got to be opportunity everywhere and it's a massive market it's a massive market and and like i go to the airport and so for us like our subjective measure of success is carousel share so by the time we get to when we get to the airport how many have we seen and it's never enough right it's so you know you're, you're all you know every time you fly international you're like you know we, i just came back from london we obviously haven't launched in the uk yet and i don't see any around there like i've seen i saw one at the airport that made my day but because we're not there i was like okay we've got work to do the market is just so big uh and the opportunity is so ripe that um you know get, getting that carousel share is like a super our, our super subjective way of, of measuring how how our success is done you know that's that's really cool and the other thing I'd like, I want to back up one second and then I want to uh, continue what we were talking about. You said during the pandemic, you guys launched into China and Tmall, right? Like like you were saying, that's not something that's a lot of other brands are looking to do. It must have been like a good opportunity for a specific niche. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about what selling into China looks like uh, as a foreign you know, manufacturer, as a foreign company? Um, you know, what were some of the things that it took to get set up on team ball? How did, was that experience? Is that something you're still doing? Yeah. Just break it down for us. Yeah. I, my, so Richard's, Richard's of, uh, of Chinese origin. So he speaks Mandarin, which, which helped the situation significantly, but it was still a new, it was a new process for us to be able to sell into China via team all. And so it was, it's a totally new thing. So for us, there's a lot of learnings. Uh, I think the biggest thing is that there's team all local and then team all global. And so for, we were part of the team more global, which meant that the product can't come from within China. It has to be cross-border. And so we, we, you, you end up hiring an agency in order, for, in order to do it, you end up hiring a, a team more agency. You have to register, you know, you have to do all the, the, the background work of registering the business and the brand name in China. Uh, and we had already done a lot of that. So yeah, as part of us registering global IP and brand name stuff. We, we made sure that we were in all the major markets and China being one of the early ones too. So we'd already done a lot of that background work. And when it came time to it, because, because we didn't have to wait any longer to get the sort of brand registrations on, uh, we could get straight into business. And, you know, it, we found ourselves in a situation where we're, we'd set up online, we'd set up with Tmall, we'd supplied all the assets, we'd worked with an agency. And we, you know, we just started doing it. And from, from our perspective, we just needed to keep giving them more and more. So it was like doing live stream events. It was, um, it was making sure that they were aligned with, with campaign stuff and what we're doing there. It, it, it ended up being quite a lot of work. And I think that where it becomes a lot of work is because of the language barrier. And because like the rest of the team obviously doesn't speak Mandarin. So we, we really needed to to better understand what they wanted so that we could help supply them. And look, sales went really, really well. Part of part of the reason that they worked well is because we were marketing ourselves as Australian. And from a Chinese perspective, they love Australian products. They they see Australia as a source of high quality products that they love coming to, to our country buying and bringing back with them. And so that that marketing worked really well for us until it didn't. So there was like some political uh tension between China and Australia, especially with some other primary categories like, like wine, uh, and, and, um, raw materials. And so because of the fallout there, being Australian didn't work to our favor. And so that's where, that's the reason why we eventually sort of like just divested out of that, that market. But for that short period of time, uh, give it 
eight to 12 months, uh, China was a really, really successful, really interesting uh, market to, to launch in because it, it's, it's, it's same, same, but very different. And so you, what you think you know about your own product, you actually have to go back and relook at how the Chinese market is, re, is marketing similar products and how, what the things that they care about. So actually a really, a really interesting thing uh, where, where our product kind of fails a little bit for the local market is that for, um, for China and Japan, they travel by train a lot. And so even though they do fly, they do travel a lot by train. And when you're on a train, having brakes as part of the, as part of the wheel system is a really important thing. So obviously the suitcase doesn't roll down the train. And so you'll find that Japanese luggage, a lot of Japanese, a lot of Chinese made luggage is, has brakes on it, uh, for that very reason. We, we don't have brakes on ours because for us, it's very much focused around flying. And, uh, and so that was a really interesting learning in that, like the uh, luggage with brakes does really well in these regions. Uh, so anyway, it, it was a, it was a learning, it was a, it was an experience. And for us, you know, we, it was, we also did personalization in China for Chinese orders as well. And so we ended up launching Chinese character personalization, which was cool. So it's, I, I'm pretty sure it's the first, uh, multilingual personalization engine in the world. Uh, like when most people, when you're ordering personalization, especially for Western markets, personalization means English characters. So what we did was obviously introduce Chinese characters as well, uh, emojis, and then also allowed from an English character perspective to have things like, um, to have multilingual support for all Romanized characters. So Romanian, Italian, French, Spanish, uh, it, it was sort of, you know, we sort of allowed all that stuff to work too. So it was, it was like, we'd built this, this international personalization engine. It started with, with Chinese characters and it's a cool thing to do, right? To say that you're personalizing in Chinese for the Chinese audience, shipping out of Australia, uh, was, it was a super cool thing to do. And, and eventually we'll go back, uh, eventually we'll go back and things, politically speaking, things are getting better. So we, uh, we don't mind being Australian there again, but, um, but for that period, it, it helped us get through, you know, sometimes when things are in lockdown, we weren't in the U S then. We, we really needed momentum. We needed to feel like we were winning, uh, at least and growing and launching in China helped us feel that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of like very interesting learnings along the way. Like you were saying, the thing about the break, the breaks, that's not something that you probably would even think about, but maybe, you know, as you start to get into other markets now, like you wouldn't, you'd actually have that tool set to kind of work with. And even when you're launching in new regions, if you've done the exercise of being able to launch your product in Chinese. Now you can, you know, that makes launching in Spanish, uh, a hell of a lot easier, right? It's, it's like going to the gym and lifting the heaviest thing first, like everything else is going to be easy. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about like one, I know you mentioned you're thinking about launching into the UK, Europe. What does that entail from a business perspective? Uh, you know, are there certain requirements that you need to meet? Does anything change when you guys need to sell into the UK and Europe? What criteria you need to meet? How are you setting up for it? Are you setting up a 3PL there? Like what does launch strategy into a new continent and market look like? Yeah, I, I, look, it's different for different for different places and different times in the business life cycle. When we did, when we launched in the US, we were, Australia was still in lockdown. We weren't allowed to leave. So we, we had to launch in the US all remotely. 
So it was finding a 3PL partner. It was figuring out clever ways to, to do personalization. Uh, you know, we didn't have any boots on the ground at the time. And so, you know, we had to do all our press via, via VC. You know, it was, it was a different time. And, uh, look, that, that was a, a super successful launch and, you know, we don't regret any of it. Now, a couple of years later in 2023, we were looking to launch in another region being the UK. We have to ask ourselves, well, what would we do differently? What, what would we change? What would we do in this current situation where we know, uh, we know, you know, the UK is flying to Europe regularly for holidays. They fly, they fly international by default. Uh, you know, what, what do these guys want and how would we, how would we do it? And so for the UK now, it's obviously part of having a 3PL partner, uh, having, having a physical, uh, warehouse presence ourselves for, for personalization, having staff, having a team there from day one, uh, actually in particular, we want to send people from Australia, like team members from Australia to actually set up the base there. Because you think like carrying the brands and, and the energy of what we do here over to a new market is actually a really great way to, for the for, for the brand to just continue on without it being its own thing, without trying to like teach people it, actually bringing that over and, and saying like, this is how, this is how we do things, this is what July means and this is how July operates. So we're really excited by that, by actually bringing people over and, and having them set up and. Um, you know, just really sort of doubling down and, and committing, committing more to it than we usually would. We, we, we're talking about retail opening up a, I think ideally we'd love to open a retail space from day one. Uh, but it's, it's about just, you know, that's a bit harder. So we're just trying to get all the, all the pieces right. So if, if you look at those two things, like the U S and the UK, the U S was, was lean, one, three PL, no presence, no, no boots on ground. No founders coming in and, and, you know, doing interviews and things like that. And then with the UK, it's like, well, we're going to be there four or five times this year. We're going to send people over, you know, we're going to set up with physical, a physical presence from day one. And so getting all those, all those bits and pieces, right. And we think not that one is better than the other. Obviously the US, you know, lean is, lean is great. We love a, a lean launch approach, but we want to make sure that the, like the UK, the UK market's quite nuanced. Again, some of these learnings that you find in each in each market, just being an e-commerce brand over there is not enough. Uh, having having a physical presence, having people know that you're real, especially from the London perspective, makes all the difference to carry you over. Yeah, it's, it seems like just kind of going back to what we were talking about, about the way consumers buy things, right? Like maybe in the US, like the consumer is like, oh, this looks cool online. I saw an ad for that. That's pretty. I'll buy it. Uh, and maybe there's a little bit more importance to brand, to heritage, to all those different components of, <laughs> of making a purchase decision in the UK and Europe. Is, is that kind of one of the things that you were thinking about a little bit in terms of making those decisions? That's right. It definitely is. And, and like, you don't get that kind of, uh, yeah, you, you just don't get that kind of uh, trigger happy commerce that you do in the U S right. Because the U.S. is very much, and and you could, you know, you're arguably trained off Amazon Prime, in the sense that it's like buy now, figure it out later approach, and uh, you know, returns are free, returns are quick. It's it's basically, you know, the 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 U.S. moves on shipping boxes, right? It's all you see a a courier vans on the streets most of the time. Uh, whereas whereas London in particular, when we talk about UK, you you really are talking about London, uh, you know, and, and a couple of the other major cities like Edinburgh, but 
but but London is is the main one. Look, there's a big tourist market there. Like delivery, uh, like next day delivery matters, uh, and you can pull it off over there because it's quite a, a consolidated marketplace. But yeah, they're, they're just not as they're not as trigger happy. There's there's so much legacy in their retail. There's there's they're not in a rush. Londoners are not in a rush. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like in the U.S., so much of the culture is driven by just consumption, consumption, consumption. Whereas like in Europe and the UK, like they'll consume, but they're just more thoughtful about, they're not like, let me buy something. And then if I don't like it, throw it out. They're like, let me make the right decision and buy it. And if it's great, everyone's going to buy it, but we're not just going to buy it. Oh, throw it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh look, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know the market just yet, but uh, in our, in our research, the e-commerce is, is a big thing over there. It's, it's growing. It's, it's, it's definitely a thing, but um, they're not as return. They're not as return friendly. They're just from yeah, which which could which is a good thing, especially for 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 you guys when you're dealing with shipping around some bigger boxes. Like that that's that's a that's a great thing to have. And then, kind of as we wrap up here, what are you know? Are there any other exciting things going on in the business? I know launching into new markets, obviously a, a huge one, but. Are there any other things you're excited about, whether it's any other things you guys are doing locally in retail or any other channels you're selling on or any other product lines you're developing? Like, what are just some other things on your mind at the moment? Yeah, look, we're, we're excited to to launch into the UK as a, as a next big step for us. Uh, you know, the beautiful thing about luggage and, and some D2C brands, some, some D2C categories, is that you don't need TJ compliance. You don't need to, to change the product per region we're quite fortunate in that this category the the product is global from day one so for us it's all about finding the resources in the the headspace to be to be able to go let's go let's go and take it to this region let's go and launch that uh we are partnering with uh with a premium retailer in in hong kong uh as a as a way of trialing something new for us uh and so that's that's an experiment you know again we're, we're still like you know richard and myself uh are still very much the scrappy founders that that started the business in the sense that like we're very much hands-on and we very much love experimenting with things and so you know when it comes to the, some of the new product that we've got coming up like for instance we've got a, a beautiful a beautiful canvas bag that that we've just launched which is which is more on the cheaper side of things but because it's machine washable because it looks gorgeous uh you know and and it's the right color set the right hardware this thing has gone gangbusters and so now we're like Order. All right, let's keep let's let's keep it within this. Let's let's keep doing this. You know, this this framework, this this kind of product category is, is really working. We should we should double down on that. And so, experimenting with with products and, and new markets and new things is is just what we love doing. You know, it's very rare that you can find yourself in a business that's growing, that you feel creatively fulfilled, and that you know that you can. It's in a category that you're you find quite sexy and enjoyable to be in. Yeah, we're extremely fortunate to do that. So it makes sense as a travel business to be able to travel and, and, and see the world and grow the, grow the brand and get more and more people to know what July means. No, that's awesome. And just as we wrap up here, where can we, where can our listeners connect with you? Are you on LinkedIn, Twitter? Like where, where can we find more about you and the brand as well? Yeah, yeah. Connect with us all over the place, you know, from a July perspective, July.com and at July across all socials. Uh, for myself, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at 8th, A-T-H, uh, or on LinkedIn as uh, as 8th and Didaskwa. 
real quick, how did you get the domain July.com? When did that happen in, in the business cycle? Were, was that like the first thing you had July.com or did you like raise some money and then get that domain? The first thing that we did was get at July on Instagram and um, anything below five characters actually needs to be, it uh, has to be released by, by Meta themselves. So it's, it's not something that you can just buy or, um, or register. And so, you know, nobody, nobody was using, we we're quite lucky. We were, we were able to get it, uh, and, and through some, through some contacts. So from that point on it, it was like, great. We secured Agile across all socials, which is extremely rare. And then, uh, and then the .com, we, we were using get July for a long time. Uh, and mainly because uh, we recalled Dropbox early days, Dropbox was getdropbox.com. They were one of the first to use the, the get. And, uh, and so we were, we were quite happy with that, but then we got, um, yeah, obviously, you know, uh, we got the, the money. Actually, one of the first purchases we did, uh, when we got the raise was to purchase the .com and this was pre COVID. So pre COVID actually domains were, well, I mean, they were expensive, but they weren't crazy. And, uh, post COVID now, because obviously e-commerce has boomed for a, for a bigger audience who probably wasn't as, um, e-commerce confident. Uh, domain names have actually gone up in, in price so that in this day and age to, to do the same purchase again would, would actually be uh, unfathomable but but back then it was quite um it's quite cool so it's quite cool to have all those assets i think you know to be able to say the dot com and at july on everything is yes yeah, exactly. i mean that's a that's a big one july when you when you shout it out you're like july.com that's a that's a flex i love it so anyway <laughs> Congrats on all the growth. Uh, we're excited to keep up with you and uh, and and excited to check in as you continue to expand in all the different markets. Thanks, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode.